I had a week off on vacation. I went down and hung out with my buddy in Tennessee where everybody was like, oh, hello, and laid back and everything. And before that was Holy Week, which was awesome. Easter morning, we, we had a great turnout to our um, sunrise, in quotes, service, or sunrise upon service. Either way it works. Uh, and before that, we had Good Friday and Monday Thursday gathered together with our sister churches. And you know, I was thinking about uh, some of the people that aren't with us anymore in that group. That group's been together a long time. Me and Tony, particularly, for 15 years almost. So, I mean, as soon as I got here, I said, well, where's the group of people who get together? And I got hooked up with Tony, who was at First Pres at the time. And yeah, I had a picture up some years ago of me... I think Tony Cleggett Ward and uh, Chuck Rauer, who was the pastor at Christ United Methodist um, before he retired. He's with the Lord now. And now uh, we're all in robes. And I didn't have a stole that was black. And so Chuck, who was basically the sweetest guy I've ever met, loaned me uh, one. It was a, a black stole and it had like a shepherd's crook that made a P and it said peace down the side. So I put this picture up because I was like, look at my friends, and I was just feeling good. And somebody on Facebook commented, looks a little too ecumenical for my tastes. To which I responded, you should definitely get better tastes. But I have always been kind of ecumenical. And you know, I think it's a good thing going all the way back to the beginning of the term. The word comes from two Greek words, as every Greek term does. Uh, it, it means, very woodenly translated, all the inhabited earth. And so the ecumenical church in the old time was, it doesn't matter if you're a Latin speaker, it doesn't matter you know, if you're in Rome, if you're a Greek speaker in Byzantium, if you're a barbarian or a Scythian, or if you're North African, if you're wherever, wherever the church is, wherever Christians are, all over the face of the earth, well, that's the church. That's the ecumenical church. All together. And as Baptists, we've always believed that. A wide tent. A lot of people of different kinds and stripes and different practices and different cultures together. That's the beauty that we see in the book of Revelation. People from every nation, tribe, language, together worshiping the Lamb around the throne. I think about one of the greatest slogans of the ecumenical movement, and it's been attributed to everybody. But it's been attributed to Augustine, to John Wesley. I don't know who really originally said it, but I know I love it. It goes this way, and you've heard it before. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And of course, charity, the old meaning of charity is meaning love. So in all things, love and kindness. And, and as Baptists, maybe we fall short on the whole today, most people, if you say, describe Baptists for me, if they don't know anything about Baptists, they won't describe that. But if they know anything historically about them, or if they know any real good Baptists, hopefully if they know Christians at this church, that'll be kind of what they describe. And when we think about ecumenical relations, we think about getting together with sister churches and worshiping in the midst of our theological differences or cultural differences, we're, we're focusing in on that second thing, right? In non-essentials, liberty. Because we all have all of the, the essential doctrine in common. We all believe in Christ. We all believe in the creeds. We all believe in, in the core doctrines. And so we're going to kind of 
not get into the details. For example, Tony's over there sprinkling babies. Clagan and I just go, all right, they'll do it in the service when we're all together, but okay. You know, we've gotten together and worshiped with churches who believe in a uh, gift of tongues really strongly or prophecy, and anyway, that's not a, a strong value in our church. We've, we've, we've really, I think, embraced a lot of these Baptist notions, and so it's a focus in on that second aspect, in non-essentials, liberty. But in Jesus' words here in Matthew 10, which make him sound very much like my buddy who told me it was a little too ecumenical for his tastes, I believe he is focusing in, if, he, if we had to choose, on, on that first tier. In essentials, unity. If we are going to be together with someone and, and link arms and worship together and serve together, and we are going to call each other brother and sister, we have to have unity around the essentials. We have to all affirm these core beliefs and doctrines of the Christian church. And that's hard today. And it's not very popular because today, the world's culture says the highest good, the greatest thing, is an absolute, total, undiscerning acceptance of everything and everyone. And the notion that we, as historically Baptist people, might recognize all being welcome, and at the same time say all are invited, you, me, and anybody else who might come in the door, to repent of our sins and receive Jesus, while recognizing that not everyone will, and while recognizing that as a result, when you receive Christ, Well, you will find the greatest peace that anyone can ever find, the peace that all men yearn for, that is peace with your creator, eternal peace, that there will be some aspects of your life that will have a distinct lack of peace. Not all the time, and not everywhere, but certain relationships, certain places, certain times. Jesus warned us about this. In fact, calling it a lack of peace might be kind of underplaying it. The Jemison Fawcett Brown uh, commentary, you might jot that down, by the way. Free online, free on your phone, free, free, free. One volume, whole Bible, best commentary you'll find. Jemison Fawcett Brown. They describe it this way. I think it was Brown, I don't know. Strife, discord, conflict, deadly opposition between eternally hostile principles penetrating into and rending asunder the dearest ties. And we sing, blessed be the tie that binds. And we like that notion of harmony and being together and ties binding us. Jesus says, some of those ties are going to be cut. In fact, he talks about coming with a sword. He says, I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. Now, what does that mean? It certainly doesn't mean he came to bring violence. That was kind of a rallying cry. Uh, in the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition, right? Uh, they would pick up the sword and for, for Jesus, and we got a cross on our chest, and we're running out and killing people and, and sacking villages. That's certainly not what he meant. Uh, we, we look in uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and find similar language of the sword, and I think it gives us a little hint of what Jesus is talking about here. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
The idea that the word of God is a sword that can divide with a scalpel surgeon precision. Dividing this from that. In this same passage, Jesus says he's going to turn people against one another. Fathers and daughters. Mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. That one's easy. That kind of takes care of itself sometimes. But that, that people in their own household will find their enemies. And he even says, if you hate your mother and father, if you don't hate your mother or father, son or daughter, et cetera, et cetera, then you do not love me. This is a passage that's been brought up again and again by skeptics who want to paint Jesus to be a weirdo cult leader and Christians to be members of some brainwashed cult. And, and I mean, Calvin, do you hate me? You are living in blatant sin, man. Repent. <laughs> now, what, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that we are going to have to choose sometimes, and it's going to be difficult. Some of the closest uh, connections we have, some of the closest things that we even find our identity in them, we're going to have to choose. And that word for hate in the Greek, it's it's a little different from our notion of hate, which is like an angry uh, energy and feeling. The word miseo, it's actually wormed its way into our English language. Uh, For example, the word misogynist, you heard that one? What's a misogynist? Not really, though, right? Not someone who hates women. Seriously, if you find, you, you find me a misogynist, and I'm going to say, do you hate women? And I'm like, oh, no, I love women. I just don't understand why they don't like me. Uh, and the reason is because <laughs> you've got this weird view of women where, you know, oh, they're there, you're fun to have around. But if it comes down to giving a job or, you know, treating someone like an equal, or making a loan, what are you going to do? You're going to choose a man instead of a woman. You know, in, in fact, that's, that's kind of the force of this word, to choose one over the other in a very, very decisive way. And Jesus is saying here, listen, you're going to have to, some of you, choose me over a child, a spouse, a parent. In fact, for those who were part of the early church, they were almost all initially out of a Jewish background. And who was your family? It wasn't just those people who lived in your house. In fact, your house is like your house with other houses built onto it with your extended family. And then you all go together to synagogue and that's your family. You couldn't separate that out completely and say, cut, cut, cut. Okay, this is just my family like we can today. We say, okay, there's a fence right here and then there's a lock on the front door. If you belong inside, that's my family. They couldn't separate it unless they had to. And if they had to, it was painful and horrible, almost a a violent process. And this exists today in in different places. I was listening to a podcast a few months ago about a guy who who lived in one of these very closed-off Hasidic communities in New York. And he slowly discovered some things about the outside world that he liked, that he he broke with it. It wasn't to become a Christian. It was uh, just basically for humanism. And he kind of broke from his Jewish faith altogether. And once he took a step or two away, he was cut off. He was ghosted. People who he assumed would be there to the very end wanted nothing to do with him. I've heard of people who become Christians coming out of an Islamic background. And the same thing can happen. You can be shunned entirely. Or uh, read, read Rosario Butterfield's book. Uh, what was, what's that one called? The autobiography. Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Yeah, she, her, her synagogue wasn't a synagogue at all. It was the halls of academia. Humanism itself. And, and she came out of that and became a believer. 
and many people kind of froze her out, burn her out, cut her off. It happens. And Jesus warned us. I mean, John 15, we read this. But when the helper comes, these are the words of Jesus. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Elsewhere, John says this, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So Jesus tells us division will come derision will come, mockery will come, the world will hate you and will mock you. And when that happens, don't go, what did I do wrong? Jesus says, what should be our response in the Sermon on the Mount? (laughs) Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And notice, I really want you to stop and notice that there's no sense of pride or giddiness in these words. I came to bring a sword. No, this whole passage is saturated with sorrow. It's, it's a sad thing. We often don't get that, though. People go to two extremes. You know, the church that on the outside makes it very clear on the sign, come as you are, stay as you are. We will not require any repentance or heart change or anything like that. You can fit in right here without any cost. Count the cost. Cha-ching, nothing. Come on in. It doesn't seem to work well anymore. Those churches are by and large dying, but that's one extreme. The other extreme is to be very, very closed off and happy about it. Uh, who's ever driven up Washington Avenue through, through Rio Town? And on the left, on, your, on the west side, it says uh, Family Motorcycle Club. Have you seen this? Over the door is a big hand-painted sign. And it says, if you don't know whether you're welcome, you're not. You're not really big. Every time I see that, part of me is like, can they even do that? And they can. It's a private club. They can do whatever they want, but it turns me off. doesn't make me think very highly of them that it doesn't say, here's our website or call us to ask about membership. Or, no, no, if, you don't, if, if we haven't already told you you're in, trust me, you're out. And you don't want to walk in the door and have 50 motorcycle guys saying, what are you doing in here, man? And I, I fear that in the church, we often read a passage like this and we get that attitude. If you don't know whether you're welcome here, don't worry. We might kind of stiffly smile and say, oh, nice to have you here. But we'll make sure you know you're not welcome here. You're out there. You're one of them. That's not at all what Jesus is teaching here. That we should cut ourselves off, making ourselves kind of the object of outside persecution and derision, and then making that a point of pride. That leads to self-righteousness, which leads to more of that, which leads to more self-righteousness. It's a vicious cycle. I saw this past week on, on Facebook. I'm, you guys, I'm very popular. I have 983 friends. I don't know how many friends you have, but I have 983. Um, most of them I've never met. Uh, I've got people who like read a book of mine and friended me. I got people who just, you know, saw that we have friends in common in front of me. And I, I, I don't know who this guy was, but sometime this week, one of my friends posted this. Arminianism is heresy exclamation point. Cowardly and compromising men will not tell you this. Arminianism, of course, being a, the, the teaching of 
uh, salvation, uh, emphasizing human will, emphasizing a decision to follow Jesus, not emphasizing God's sovereignty. So basically throwing any Methodist, uh, Church of God, uh, anyone in the charismatic movement for the most part, right under the bus. Um, most Baptists these days, at least, uh, you know, American Baptists. And a few of us went in there and tried to kind of talk some sense into this kid and, and say, look, I've been where you are. I dip my toe in that, right? We call that the cage stage. When you become a Calvinist, they should lock you in a cage for like five years until you cool off and you don't want to convert everybody. And, and he, he just, he wouldn't have it. No, 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 no. They're not saved if they're not, if they're not Calvinist. And after a while, he said, listen, you're defending them so much, I doubt you two are saved. And we were like, oh, we're gone. We're out. And I'm thinking, how many people who aren't believers are watching this happen and seeing that Christians like to eat their own? There's a glee in pointing out doctrinal differences in essentials, unity, and everything's essential. In essentials, unity, and by unity, I mean uniformity. Or there's a glee in pointing out others' sins, because that takes the attention, including my attention, off of my own sins. If I'm busy going, oh, famous preacher that fell, oh, look at that, look at that, look at that person. Condemning people all over. Finding some kind of perverse joy in burning other people down and snuffing out the smoldering wick and breaking the bent reed. This isn't what Jesus is teaching, of course. I think of the words of Romans 12, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone in your own little tribe who's exactly like you, believes like you, talks like you, looks like, no, no. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, with all, with the Roman pagans, with the leaders of your local synagogue who put you out already, with all, but... From Jesus' words here in Matthew 10, we can see that when St. Paul wrote that, he did not mean even to the point of compromising the truth, the heart of the gospel. That, that we cannot say, I have to have peace and harmony and full acceptance by the world, and so we will start bending the gospel to match the culture. Never ruffling any feathers, never, never doing anything calling good evil, calling evil good. Jesus condemns even tolerating wickedness in our midst. Remember that, Revelation 2? I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And give those who commit adultery with her, uh, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So that's the words of Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. There will be division. There must be division. In fact, in Revelation 18, John says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Jesus came the first time to bring a sword that would separate our old selves from us, our old hearts from out of us. 
to separate us and divide us from the world and its wickedness. The next time he comes, there's a sharp double-edged sword coming from his mouth, which brings judgment. James chapter 4, we read, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world must make himself an enemy of God. That's an either or. That means everyone can't be happy. That means there is a choice. It means that sometimes it comes down to choosing which peace you want. Temporary peace with the world. Again, ruffling no feathers. Never calling sin, sin, or truth, truth, or lies, lies. Or eternal peace with God. If you've ever experienced the depth of that peace, you know that there's nothing the world can offer that even begins to hold a candle to it. And so, if you find yourself experiencing what Jesus is describing here, where there is something close to home that begins to hurt because of your commitment to Christ, because you're a follower of His, and you will not let that go, you will not compromise that, you will not water it down, you find an old tie that binds beginning to fray and maybe being cut. Remember the words of Jesus from that first Monday Thursday. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. There's two kinds of peace. There's what the world offers and there's what Jesus offers. And Jesus promises that if we choose what he offers, that we will be satisfied. In fact, he ends this rather downer of a passage with something very positive. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 